poopy. This is the Olympic Files, <clears throat> but more specifically, we're calling this Mystery History Theater, and this is Act Two. Uh, the overall title is uh, Who Ordered the Hit on Abe? But the um, subtitle for this will be Who Was Abe? Now, anybody who has listened uh, to what I've done along with Theo, it's strictly in the purview of suppressed history. It's also called revisionist history, except what's funny about it is that a lot of this work was, was written at the time of the event. So it wasn't written about in the rearview mirror. Revisionist history has got a bad name because it um, kicks the shins out of mainstream history uh, as it's provided us in textbooks and, and in books of, um, you know, geared for mass consumption. It's the government story, and it is often uh, untrue. Perhaps not all the way through, but enough that it colors the situation differently than what actually took place. There could be nothing more uh, evident of that happening in a historical event, especially in an assassination, than Lincoln's assassination. Um, we um, are going to examine a whole lot in this series, and you can make up your own minds. There will also be plenty of information provided you so that you know that whatever I uh, shared has not been taken out of context. You can also weigh whether or not you feel the authors, the researchers, are playing it straight. I believe they are. If I find that there might be something that I'll, that I'll read or reference that I think might be questionable, I'll say so. doesn't mean it's false. It just I'm just not going to go the whole nine yards with it. But there's much here uh, that's in the record that was never shared with the public because the one thing, again, what I've said time and time again about living in, in the United States, and that is Americans have been propagandized into believing that we can't be propagandized. Uh, you're going to have to come to a realization, or maybe you don't have to, but if you're looking for the truth, you have to come to the realization that this country is not really all unlike a lot of others in the way that they deal with their citizens. Uh, yeah, sure, there's a, countries that are a lot worse. And it's countries that are better, believe it or not. But we've been massaged pretty well to get into things that we probably shouldn't have all over for a century when sometime after or because of the springboard that was the Spanish-American uh, debacle um, that we decided that we were going to be the ass-kickers of the, of the planet. Uh, and that was because other interests wanted it that way and they did not necessarily spring up in the United States, but across the pond. But more about that, and you'll find that connection very much in this whole series that we're doing about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I'm going to read from three works, two of which uh, come from, well, really quite different backgrounds. One is from uh, a Union spy who worked Northern Virginia and um, had a couple of close calls, enough that eventually he said, my luck is running out. And he uh, went to work for what was called the National Detective Police. I, I guess you could say loosely that that was the forerunner of the FBI, but you'll hear a lot about them. Of course, you've never heard about them from your regular history accounts, but uh, you will hear. So he... Uh, he went to work for them, and um, his memoirs are um, on a website uh, that has um, what's called a Neff Gutridge Collections. And Neff and Gutridge, if you remember from the first episode, um, were co-authors of a book called The Dark Union. Uh, at, they uh, both taught at Indiana State. Both are now deceased. Uh, but they compiled a number of really provocative, very interesting manuscripts, uh, and two of which are 
firsthand accounts of what these principles were involved with during the Civil War. One of them, in fact, is one of the conspirators who was not hanged for the Lincoln assassination. And a third will come from a book written by Lincoln's bodyguard and in the earlier years, his partner at a law firm in Illinois. So uh, we're going to get to it right now with the account uh, that I'm going to quote from, written by uh, one William Robert Bernard. And if you will, let me read you the uh, background information on him, okay? Toward the end of his life, William Robert Bernard, alias Rob Rover, created a memoir journal of his activities during and for a brief period after the Civil War. The memoir is undated, and the last date mentioned in it is 1914, but based on some of his remarks, it appears that it was written some years after this date. While Bernard indicates having been born in 1838, his identity after 1868 and the date of his death are undisclosed. Bernard faked his own death and assumed a new identity. The reader should find the story Bernard tells to be exciting and to reveal aspects of life and military operations during the Civil War, which may not be widely known. Initially, Bernard became a con contract scout for the Army of the Republic, providing military intelligence, particularly on the movements of the Confederate Army using the alias, alias of Rob Rover, a name taken from a character in a children's book uh, that he had liked as a child. After uh, several brushes with the hangman's noose or a bullet, Bernard left this line of work and sought less stressful work as a clerk in Washington. Colonel Lafayette C. Baker, whose various duties included running the National Detective Police, the precursor of the Secret Service, that's their story, approached Bernard during this period and recruited him into the NDP. William Bernard, alias Rob Rover, remained in this line of endeavor for the remainder of the war. Bernard's own statement was that the, quote, journal will never be seen during my lifetime, unquote. And he further wondered if there would be any interest should his journal find the light of day. The answer is rather obvious, yes. The public is curious and wants to know the truth, and whatever Bernard can add, however limited his own knowledge might have been, helps make those turbulent times more understandable to the current generation. All right, before I get into his remarks, and I'm only going to quote him in the part of his manuscript in which he addresses who he thought knew Abraham Lincoln to be. And this is one of the good guys, remember. Uh, Lafayette Baker was the head of the NDP, as you just heard, and he's a character that, again, it, it's, it's just, there's so many personalities involved in this that are galvanizing, but not to the same direction. <laughs> They're like 360 degrees, well, 180 degrees uh, opposite. Uh, some think Baker was just the best there was out there as far as uh, protecting the Union, if you will. Others think that he was a provocateur. Uh, he did lose his life under certain um, suspicious circumstances, and I, I think maybe I'll tie it up with uh, Bernard addressing that situation. And, and if I'll, I'll bring it right home to you, what this is there's a, there's a strange body count around the Lincoln assassination as there was with the JFK assassination. You all know the similarities that have been. Uh, kept going through the years about the secretary's names and all this. Look, there are a number of coincidences. There's no two ways about it. Similarities, whatever. But it gets even stranger now when you get into uh, some of the more uh, unpleasant aspects of the assassination. Uh, then it really does get somewhat eerie. So, uh, again, you'll find characters like Baker and others who are seen as both good guys and absolute idiots. That's just the way it is. So, all right, um, going to the first remarks that Bernard makes about Lincoln. Here we go. Abraham Lincoln had depended on politicians, 
mostly of West Point origin, to advise him, mainly because he had no real military background or experience himself. The political militarists were more political than military in that they still lived in the, quote, brick and ball, unquote, days, and understood nothing of the then advanced ideas of warfare. The advice they gave Lincoln led him to make the three most dangerous underestimates which led to the Great War. First, there was a very widespread idea that Southern politicians were leading the South towards secession, and that if the South indeed seceded, she could never raise an army because only the aristocrats wanted the South out of the Union, and an army of aristocrats was no army at all. Second, the Union Army could sweep onto and through the South in 90 days since the Union Army, although small in numbers, when reinforced with the magnificent militia of the North, would be invincible. Third, the South had no manufacturing and with a naval blockade could not bring in supplies and would therefore be forced back into the Union. And I don't want to comment. I want you to make up your own minds. I will, however, address one thing that was stated, and that was in that first uh, bullet point, if you will, that there was a very widespread idea that Southern politicians were leading the South towards secession and that the South indeed seceded. She would never raise an army because only the aristocrats wanted the South out of the Union and an army of aristocrats was no army at all. That, to a certain degree, is true. But apparently, what um, Bernard is saying is that Obviously, the reality, as they all found out, was that the South did raise an army that was willing to fight. However, there's also information, and some of this comes from the book called Albion Seed, in which the folk waves or the immigration waves, four of them as they detail in the book Albion Seed, speaks to the fact that there's a reason why, for instance, that uh, West Virginia those living in what is West Virginia now, did not want to throw in uh, with the South. Uh, also some in Tennessee. Tennessee was a little bit of a strange state, although it did go, the state itself went uh, southern. Uh, also Kentucky. There were places that said, hey, look, this is a fight for plantation owners and their slaves, and we have nothing to do with them. Now, Albion C would say that there was one folk wave uh, that sent uh, what it called, the book called The Cavaliers, to the Tidelands on the Atlantic coast in Virginia, North Carolina and such, where there were plantations and there was slavery. Those who, uh, that folkway that went into the Appalachians, if you will, uh, you know, the Blue Ridge and West, the Appalachian vein that goes through, obviously, West Virginia, you know, parts of Tennessee, um, they were Scots-Irish, and they were Highlanders. They had nothing to do with the Cavaliers back in the United Kingdom and didn't like them. And so they didn't want to pitch in with them. And so to a certain extent, the raising of the army, thought perhaps impossible by the North, was maybe a little problematic, but certainly did not hold, because the South did raise an army, obviously. All right, a final paragraph as it regards these observations by Bernard. All right, and we, we're talking about um, the South had no manufacturing. That was the third point, right? A naval blockade could not bring in supplies and would therefore be forced back into the Union. That is the South. All right, this was the thinking which led Lincoln to reinforce Fort Sumter and soon thereafter call for 90-day volunteers. Of course, General McDowell was about as much politician as general and was thereby stampeded into making the movement against Manassas, which led to the Union defeat at Bull Run. After Bull Run, the politicians, as well as the people of the North, began to awaken to the fact that it was not as they had thought, and that it was going to be a long and hard war. The army that faced the Union at Bull Run was not an aristocrat's army, but an army of farmers, mostly non-slave owners. They also fought much like the men of the Revolution, as though they were or at least thought they were, uh, fighting for their liberty. The men who fought the hardest were the ones in homespuns, and they fought and died for what they believed. To the Union soldier, it was either a picnic or just a job to do so that he could get back home. Bull Run also showed that far from being invincible, the Union Army was an inexperienced mob led by officers who, for the most part, were antiquated in their approach to war. 
General Scott was old and dying of dropsy. Union thinking was very conservative, to say the very least. As for the naval blockade, it was never really effective. I traveled through the South during all periods of the war, and the fact was always apparent to me that the South did not run out of imports. They ran out of men. At the beginning of the war, the greatest majority of Southern men volunteered. This left a shortage, shortage rather, of non-slave manpower at home. This gap was filled by Southern women in most instances. The fourth great mistake in Northern thinking was regarding the slaves. This idea began with the beginning of the abolitionist movement. It was the basis of thinking of those Northern abolitionists who raised the $100,000 for John Brown for his raid on Harper's Ferry. That idea was that slaves would revolt if given the opportunity. This idea was quickly shown to be false when slaves refused to leave their masters in Union-occupied territory in Maryland and Virginia. It is difficult in this day and age to imagine how the slave must have felt. The master could buy and sell them at will, and he held complete control over them, but in most cases, they loved him and his family. There are few cases on record, or brought to mind, where the slave did harm to their masters or their family, certainly no more than would be expected to occur in any society. The slave was in most instances happy in his life of no responsibility and complete social welfare. That his medical needs were ignored is doubtful since what businessmen would pay uh, around $1,500 for a possession and then neglect it is unlikely. Most farmers are quick to call the veterinarian for their horses and slower to call the doctor for their wife. So it, it was, so it was with the slave owners. I do not wish to imply that I consider slavery to be right, but I feel that it was extremely cruel to the slave to force him from secure, completely managed life, which he led prior to freedom into a life of having a shift for himself in a highly competitive capitalistic world where um, he was and is exploited by every politician who is seeking something. So, I mean, that's going to go down hard with a lot of people, but consider what he said, that he understands that you know, no one really likes slavery, but there were times, if it weren't the majority of cases, where things worked out all right. Uh, do we all want to be free? Yes. In fact, as I'm talking to you, we're all really in slavery to a certain extent, but no one can really feel sorry for us. We don't have manacles on us, but there is an IV into our arm, which which uh, uh, takes out, and this is the government sucking more and more on the money folks make, uh, needing more and not being able, supposedly, to take care of its own house. But that's another story for another time. But there you have at least the original comments as uh, Bearden viewed Lincoln's um, miscalculations. As we move on, uh, what I'll read now references that Bearden as a spy, and, that, and that's exactly what he was, uh, was, I guess, um, somewhat involved with and taking notes on a number of individuals who were making counterfeit Confederate bonds, but were also making counterfeit U.S. banknotes. Um, and I'll pick it up from there. So that, that, that was his surveillance, okay? And he was involved with them. Uh, I was instructed to return to Washington City as soon as possible after my business was completed at Warrington. I spent about a week at that fine southern hotel, the Warren Green, enjoying their most sumptuous meals and wonderful service. General Ambrose Burnside had replaced McClellan as the new commander of the Union Army. For anyone who had ever seen General Burnside in the field, it was difficult to see any logic in the choice. I had the general feeling of, of the capital that Lincoln had again given in to the radical members of the Republican Party. The replacement had a terribly depressing effect on the fighting men. To them, Little Mac was their idol. They would follow him into the gates of hell, but they did not care for big bros. The Army moved to Fredericksburg, and I moved to Washington. I was made civilian adjutant to the 1st District Cavalry, a position I was to hold for many months. I received information and related to Colonel Baker. This is the Lafayette Baker uh, we spoke about earlier on. In many instances, he would then send his instructions through me. I knew the names and locations of most of his detectives all the time, except when I was sent into the field for one reason or another. By January's end, General Hooker had replaced Big Bros as commander. Bros had been a big disappointment to Uncle Abraham. He had been the exact opposite of Pope, that would be the other military officer, Pope, 
who had become hysterical and retreated while big bros had attacked and then become hysterical. But both had one thing in common. They had gotten hell beaten out of them. It is difficult today for anyone to realize just what happened. But to those of us who were in Washington City, one day on the front lines, several days later, it was quite clear. It was purely a political war and must be fought along political lines. Lincoln, who in 1862 was conducting a war to, quote, suppress rebellion, had, just before the Mexican War, said that any section or area had an inherent right to rebel and indeed a duty to rebel when their rights were threatened even by a majority. He had also said that he would not threaten the institution of slavery, but he had then issued his Emancipation Proclamation, which, at least in theory, destroyed slavery in the South, where he had no control, but allowed it to continue in the North, where he had control. But more than that, Lincoln did not uh, have control of even his administration. He was a man who swung from moods of complete despondency and despair to moods of unrealistic joy. At one time, he would peruse a report of our action and immediately see some, quote, divine sign indicating his future actions. At another time, he would see a, quote, divine sign of impending doom. All around him, those ambitious rascals that constant Washington City and pervade its agencies used his superstitions to great advantage and, quote, divine signs were constantly being provided. One divine sign, quote, <laughs> eventually sent him to Ford's Theater for his date with his executioner. It is strange how his death saved him from mediocrity. If he had not been killed by the assassin, he would not have been associated with Washington, that is, the president, in history as he is today. And remember, this is like 1914. Thousands and thousands died because he, by miscalculation, led the country into a war, a war which neither North nor South really wanted, a war which was unnecessary except to preserve that nebulous thing known as, quote, honor, a war in which both contenders were fighting for, quote, freedom. And moving to um, an aside commentary about Bearden's boss, Lafayette Baker. Yeah, it's interesting, so here we go. I would like at this point to present some appropriate comments about the late Lafayette C. Baker. I knew him well for the war years after Second Bull Run and after the war until his death. I always have felt that he, like the much martyred Lincoln, was murdered by very powerful and most ambitious political foes. That Baker was murdered um, can be no doubt in my mind. That others of which we know not were likewise disposed of cannot be doubted. I would have died by an assassin's hand had I not in 1968 feigned suicide, changed my name, and gone elsewhere. To do this cost me my chance at happy married life with the only love of my life, the late Kate Scott. She never married, nor did I. She has long also preceded me in death and went to her grave thinking that I had drowned myself in the ocean off Cape May, New Jersey. Colonel Baker was a most remarkable man in many ways. He could be at times most ruthless, uh, but he believed without reservation that the means justify the end. He had learned his detective abilities as a vigilante in California. He had a most retentive memory. The downfall of any agent was and is the written, the written word or maps. And he goes on to talk about the system that uh, Baker had uh, developed, and it was strictly in his own powers of memorization. Uh, that it was successful, and apparently he was uh, extremely gifted in that sense. All right, moving on, uh, more comments from Bearden. It is now history how this rogue, meaning John Wilkes Booth, struck down President Lincoln at Ford's Theater. There has been much written about the matter, and many wonder why General Grant declined to go at the last minute. I have no new knowledge in that matter, but I am sure that Grant was not in on the plot. I do believe that someone made sure that he was not there since this would have increased the guard and Booth uh, would never have escaped. This I can now say with all certainty. Abraham Lincoln was murdered by the passive action of his own cabinet. There was money raised among Northerners for the purpose and the opportunity was established for Booth to do the job, all the time thinking that he was undetected. By the time I had made my reports from Montreal, 
there was more evidence against J.W. Booth than was ever needed for conviction by a military commission. Many other men have been hung for much less during the Lincoln administration. When Lincoln was assassinated, Colonel Baker was in New York, but he quickly returned to Washington. I met him at the Willard Hotel, and Dooley was with me. The search for the assassin was completely confused, and everyone was trying for the reward. False information was being passed at every hand. Uh, Colonel uh, Baker asked me to go with Dooley on the next boat down the river to Matthias Point and to wait at the river crossing, which was part of the express route to Richmond through southern Maryland. This we did. Booth did not come this way due to his injury. If he had, Dooley and I would have had a share of the reward money, for we would have captured him alive. This, no doubt, would have proved most embarrassing to many persons in high places. Saying that um, Abraham Lincoln was murdered by the passive action of his own cabinet. Huh, hello? So it was an inside job, if you will. Uh, and later on, he says, at the end of what I read, it said, uh, this, no doubt, would have proved most embarrassing to many persons in high places. Let me add this also. It's another paragraph right under that. In short, it said, It would gain me nor anyone anything to divulge the many infamous secrets which are lodged within my memory. For the souls of those responsible are in the hands of the uh, all-powerful judge who is neither deceived nor distracted from his justice. While that second part is all well and true, it would have been good if Bearden, and he's not the only one who says the same thing, what good would it do? I'm thinking that still there was a very heavy patriotic vein through him and others of his kind, and they may have thought that they were going to leave behind this just absolute maelstrom of um, chaos. And yet, you know, go ahead and do it. There's going to be stonewalling and whitewashing and everything else, but go ahead and do it. Uh, at, the, at the time that this was written, by Bearden, and you'll, another one that's written by, as I said, one of the conspirators whose death was uh, faked. Uh, he did not fake his own death. It was faked for him by the NDP. Um, and he said the same thing. I mean, what's the sense? But, no, there was sense. They gave us this much at least, but there was, there was more sense in stating it because all of them refer to higher forces. I mean... And Bearden nails it when he says, you know, passive action of his own cabinet. Who knew what was going on? For the record, uh, Bearden did believe that Booth was shot at Garrett's barn. Uh, that is not the case, but that's all that he knew. And um, he's going with that story. Why should he? Why should he? Uh, I just want to read a little bit more. And um, I'll, I'll tell you why when I'm done. <clears throat> I saw Colonel, then General, Baker in Washington during the congressional hearings. He was uh, pale and distraught. He talked with me for but a short time and then bid me a fond farewell forever. I never saw him again. He told me that he was constantly being followed and that there had been many attempts on his life. He died on July 3, 1868, and I have always thought that he was murdered. I tried to visit him in June before his death, but I did not see him. His lovely wife met me in the parlor, and we talked for a short while. She was pathetic to see. She was distraught with fright. I promised to return when the general was better, but such was never to be. Jane Baker remarried in later years and became the mother of a fine son, who later became a general in the Marine Corps. From the day that I talked with Mrs. Baker, I was, allowed, I was followed no matter where I went. I don't know what they were after, but someone was anxious to see me dead. There were several open attempts on my life. I suppose I knew too much of many things which had gone on. I realized that I had to take drastic action to avert being murdered. I was then engaged to marry Miss Kate Scott of Brooksville, Pennsylvania, a grand lady known to me since childhood. I fully realized, however, that she was marrying me now for convenience than anything else since she had never forgotten her first love, Calvin Craig. Colonel Craig had been her lifelong friend, and they had been in the war together, her as a nurse and he as a captain of volunteers with the 105 Pennsylvania Militia. He had unexpectedly married someone else, but she never forgot him. He was later killed, leading his men in a glorious charge. I went to see Kate and managed with little difficulty to break the engagement during a purposeful quarrel. I also terminated my business and converted all my assets to cash. I caught the steamer to Cape May, New Jersey. 
I registered at a small hotel and spent several days lying in the sun. I left my room at night and took one small valise in which I had most of my money, some few clothes, and a razor. These I secreted under a bayberry bush a short way up the beach. I then returned to my room and my presence had never been missed. The next morning, being a Sunday, I went to church. I returned from church and went immediately to the bush. I quickly disrobed and walked into the surf. There were many persons on the hotel porches, as I knew there would be. The ladies began to scream and point. I plunged into the surf and began to swim. Whale boats were launched, but I was far enough out to be able to move up the beach without them being able to see me. I had picked an incoming tide, and I was swept up to and easily swam into a small inlet, which was fed by a creek. I emerged out of sight of my would-be rescuers and proceeded to where my valise was hidden. I dressed and then moved further from the beach. I stopped only long enough to shave off my beard and mustache. I went straight into Cape May Courthouse and acquired lodging at a boarding house. Cape May Courthouse is also the name of a city. It would be like South Cape May. So Cape May, you didn't go into the courthouse. You went into a town named uh, Cape May Courthouse. Later in the day, I heard of the suicide of a man at Cape Island City. Robert Bernard was dead. I had assumed a new name, and it left my past behind, for I was followed no more. And finally, I went west, made new investments and a fortune. I did not marry until 1914 after hearing of the death of Kate Scott, a woman I dearly loved. There was one thing that made me fake a suicide. I had seen the mortal fear in the eyes of Jane Baker. I did not want Kate to know that fear. This journal will never be seen during my lifetime. If it will ever be of any interest after my death, I do not know, but there is much which will die with me, and that is for the best. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but the Kate Scott that he mentions was a nurse that served in um, the ranks of the Union Army, but who made the acquaintance of John Wilkes Booth, and they had an affair, and she begat him a child. We'll get into that later. So whether Bernard knew this or not, I mean, it looks like he didn't. But she never married Booth, but she did have his, quote, love child. And I'm telling you, this thing gets more entangled and entwined. So I'm taking it piece by piece. But there you have it. What Bearden knew at the time and what has been known, uh, as we will find out later, and documented by the fact that Booth left a will that mentioned four women who bore, uh, what did he call it? I don't know. <laughs> the fruit of his being or something like that. We'll get into that later. All right, the following is from a diary that was orally given by a John Henry Stevenson, who is also known as Michael O'Loughlin, who was one of the conspirators that was not hanged, but sentenced to life at Fort Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas. Um, for, for the most part here, I'll, I'll state why he got away. So if you consult anything like Wikipedia or any other uh, dictionary or encyclopedia or history texts about the main conspirators, O'Loughlin will be listed as having died of yellow fever in 1867. In fact, he did not, and there's a reason why. Again, another fake death um, for other purposes. Not so unusual, and to this day, I'm sure that kind of thing still goes on. But before we get into um, this diary that was dictated, apparently... He uh, gave this dictation on well at, in October of 1886. <clears throat> it is written by the person who took the uh, the, the uh, dictation. It was transcribed. A, a woman by the name of Lottie Eaton stated in the last paragraph: "Mr. Stevenson died at 5:35 a.m. on June 23rd, 1890, at the farm of Mrs. That's Mrs. in plural, not Mrs. like married. To Miss, if you will." Mrs. Emma and Elmira Brandt in Muscatine County, Iowa. He had been ill for such a long time, and he longed so for death. He was buried in a small plot which he had picked out himself. It overlooked the Mississippi River and gave a beautiful view. 
I visited his grave almost daily since his passing, and a headstone has been erected. It reads, John Henry Stevenson, 1838 to 1890. His coming made the world a little richer. His being here made the world a little brighter. His passing made the world a little sadder. His memory lingers to give us comfort. And to go to the beginning of this whole situation, here is a statement by the person, Lolly Eaton, who transcribed this. When I was 10 years old, there was a man who came to the home of my benefactor, Miss Clara Barnt, in Muscatine County, Iowa. The year was 1882, and my parents had died in the flu epidemic of 1878. I had gone to live with neighbors until 1880 when the Brandt sisters took me in and I became the legal ward of Miss Clara. I said Barnt before because it was a misspelling on her behalf. It's Brandt. Mr. John B. Stevenson came to the Brandt home in the fall of 1882 and lived out the rest of his life there. When he died in 1890, they laid him to rest in a plot of ground overlooking the mighty Mississippi River, awaiting that day when all the faithful will arise and be with their Christ in the realm of glory. The narrative which is here presented is an exact duplication of the story that he told me in order that I might record it. I gave him my solemn promise that during his lifetime I would not reveal it. With his passing, I am relieved of that promise. I am therefore telling the story in his exact words, knowing full well that there are many who will say I made the whole thing up. It truly does sound fantastic, but I believe it to be, the, uh, to be true, since I learned to know and love the man who told it to me and know him to be a man of God and of truth. However, the reader will have to take it as it is or reject it as he chooses. I have no proof of its truth other than the word of the gentleman. The part I'm going to read from the diary, it doesn't have so much to do with Lincoln's personality or character, uh, which Bearden spoke to and which um, will also... Uh, hear about from another individual who, in fact, was his bodyguard, Ward Lemon. But this gives you an idea of what was going on. And this is mentioned time and again in other books as well, about these well-placed people who were funding either the kidnapping of Lincoln or the murder of Lincoln. And uh, we'll set this up, and then you'll hear what Stevenson, a.k.a. O'Loughlin, uh, has to say about what he saw as being the uh, driving force behind some plan to, let's just say, incapacitate Lincoln. Because you have to understand, I mean, think about it. A lot, it was all blamed on the Confederacy and the plot came out of Richmond, which it did not, because there was no military advantage to do anything with Lincoln, kidnap him or kill him, after it was over. So it meant nothing to the Confederacy, if anything. They wouldn't want to have done anything after the fact because it would have made their, quote, reconstruction or their readmission into the Union much, much harsher. I mean, they were all the states except one, I think, think Tennessee was exempted, but uh, not really sure. But there was military rule uh, of the uh, several Confederate states. How much worse do you want to make it? All right. So anyway, it would make no sense uh, to incapacitate Lincoln had to have something else uh, at its core. Why that would happen? Why would you do that? And we suggested that after that Barnes letter that was read in the first uh, segment of this, that they wanted just to get him and Seward out of the way so they could just fulfill the contracts because Congress would, um, and some of those congressmen were making money on this deal as well, they would uh, become the executive for a, a temporary period and would pass those contracts through, and then they would bring back Lincoln. So that was a, that was a, a financial business benefit that Barnes was looking for as well as others in the pork for cotton deal. All right, They didn't want him dead. They just wanted him not in town. Uh, so that the Congress could do what they feared, rightfully so, that Lincoln would not. All right, here's what he says, just a little bit of a brief setup. He, meaning um, Booth, he boarded the train for New York, and I was not to see him for several weeks. 
He then sent me a note saying that he must see me as soon as possible. I met him at a restaurant on Fayette Street, and we had dinner together. I was without funds, as usual, and he knew it. He asked me if I would like to make a few hundred dollars. I told him that I most certainly would. He then introduced me to a, quote, Major Harris, and the three of us sat together with our brandy. The Major said that he had uh, need of men that he could trust in a business endeavor which he was starting. He offered me $300 if I would make a trip to Montreal for him and deliver a package to him in New York. I agreed to do it, and all the arrangements were made. I went to Montreal and returned with the package, which was only about four inches by four inches by eight inches, and weighed two pounds. I had no trouble getting it back to him and felt that I had made a quick um, $300. When he approached me again in about a month, I again made the trip for him for the same amount. I made a total of five trips in as many months. To this day, I do not know what was in the packages. Uh, I know it must have been dishonest or I would not have been paid so handsomely. A daughter was born to Wilkes in the late fall. He's referring to John Wilkes Booth. November, I believe. His wife was living on the farm in Virginia, and she had with her uh, the darkies owned by Wilkes. The farm was small and did not provide other than pasture for his horses and two milk cows, but Isola enjoyed it there. Uh, Wilkes made frequent trips to the farm and would then spend about a week each time. He had a good income by this time, and he kept his family well supplied except for his presence. When the war started, I saw Wilkes on infrequent occasions until 1863. In the spring of that year, I again met, met Wilkes in Baltimore, and he had Major Harris with him. We met in the lady's slipper and had dinner together. The Major then asked me if I would like to work for him again. I said that I would. This time he uh, had a different mission for me, and I went into Indiana. I, I went with two other men, and we made a trip to Owensboro, Kentucky, which lay just south of the Ohio River. While there, we met a Mr. Watson, who was very anxious to hear about Booth and quote his plan. I did not then know what the plan was or that a plan existed, but Watson knew of it. When I returned to Baltimore, I asked Wilkes about it. He then took me into his confidence and told me about it. The plan was to kidnap the president the vice president, and the secretary of state and take them someplace where they could not be found. So that's Lincoln, that's Johnson, and that's Seward. There were a number of Confederate Secret Service men assigned to the plan. The main backing was in the north, however, and it was from here that most of the money was to come. I have in later years thought much of this, and I cannot think that all the persons involved had the same motives. It appears that many persons uh, with completely opposite desires were assisting the plan, each thinking that in the end he would control the activity. None knew Wilkes Booth nor how to reckon with him. I do not know how much money was behind the plan, but I do know that it was more than a quarter million dollars. There were treasury notes to the extent of over $150,000, and there were large amounts of greenbacks. Booth had received $80,000 in gold coin of foreign mintage in the early, early, 18, in early 1863 and had been forced to uh, bury it in order to not become suspect. Gold coin of foreign mintage, when redeemed, made anybody immediately suspect by the government since this was the method of operation of smugglers. Gold coins of foreign origin had to be taken out of the country to be redeemed. Booth, Booth took the coins to his farm in Virginia and secreted them there. In the fall of 1863, Booth discovered that the Treasury notes were duplicates of numbers and that, and that uh, due to the Treasury scandals, all of that type of them called in. In order uh, to redeem them, one had to give his name when they were redeemed. The recognition of so large an amount would certainly uh, arouse suspicion. Wilkes then took this to his farm and hid them. It was about this time that Wilkes began to run short of cash. He had a fortune in his possession, but he could not use it. He had invested in oil in Pennsylvania and had made other expenditures which drained heavily on his resources. He became involved in smuggling operations with a Canadian shipping firm. Major Harris had disappeared some six months earlier, and none seemed to know what became of him. Booth filled in the gap. It was necessary to get quinine to the Confederacy, and Wilkes became determined to do it. So that just sets up what was going on. As Stevenson said, there were some plans afoot, without a doubt, and that not everybody was on the same page as to what was going to happen. But I think that it was key and really the reason I read this uh, portion, because we'll find out what happens later on about the uh, money that Booth had uh, squirreled away 
and that had something to do with O'Loughlin's release from prison. But that later. Here, I just think it's very interesting that he said uh, Confederate Secret Servicemen were assigned to the plant, but the main backing was in the North, however. And that it was from here that most of the money was to come. Uh, Stevenson uh, did add this on the last page of the dictation. I guess you could say it's the last words he had for the public. But they echo what Bearden felt about the information that he had and that he knew inside secrets, let's just say. But Stevenson's last words were, there is much that I could relate, but it would do no good. I am not bitter and go to my reward willingly since my life has been difficulty and I am so sorry. October 15, 1886. Like Bearden, he said, I know more, but I'm not going to say it. We wish they would have said it. And this gives you an idea, too, about people who say that conspiracies, uh, especially of assassinations of presidents, let's say, uh, could not be kept secret. Well, they're not really kept secret. Many know, but not for the record. You know, none went to uh, newspapers or book publishers that we know of anyway, or if they did, that, that their work ever got out. But it's choked off. If you don't get it out in front of the public through whatever the means may be, at that time it was pretty much just newspapers, but then later on it doesn't matter if there's radio and TV. Still, the censorship goes on, and you can keep it quiet. There may be thousands that know, maybe even hundreds of thousands that know that something stunk. But it doesn't matter because those voices aren't heard at least not beyond what we would say locally, you know, mouth to ear. So again, too bad that neither man decided to tell more. But this bit about having information may have cost others their lives. What Bearden feared may in fact have happened to him because that is the thought about Baker, uh, Lafayette Baker, who was the head of the NDP and whose life uh, was attempted several times. But now we move on to uh, a very hard-hitting portrait of Lincoln by Ward Lamon, who was his close friend. Um, I think Lamon wrote two books. This one was not well received because it came pretty much on the heels of Lincoln's assassination uh, and was not flattering of him. And, of course, don't speak ill of the dead. But Lamon re, uh, relates certain things uh, that he was privy to with Lincoln, as well as some other insights that he included in his book, and we're going to take care of that now. All right, uh, Wikipedia gives a pretty objective uh, report on, um, on Lamon. But Lincoln and Lamon met in Illinois. Uh, I'll pick it up here. It says that. Uh, Lamon's professional association with Lincoln started in 1852 when he became Lincoln's law partner in Danville, Illinois. Their partnership uh, lasted until 1857 when Lamon became the prosecuting attorney for the old 8th Judicial District and subsequently moved to Bloomington, Illinois in 1858. While Lamon had Southern sympathies and his hatred of abolitionism set him apart from Lincoln, they remained friends despite their very different characters. Lamon joined the then young Republican Party, and campaigned for Lincoln in 1860. Lincoln was up uh, against New York Senator William Seward for the Republican nomination. And of course, he got the Secretary of State position. And Lamon proved his friendship by printing up uh, extra tickets for the convention to fill the hall with Lincoln supporters. So the guy, you know, he was pretty savvy. Uh, when Lincoln was elected president, Lamon hoped for a foreign diplomatic post, but received a letter from his friend that said, Dear Hill, which is uh, Lamon's middle name, Ward Hill Lamon, I need you. Uh, I want you to go to Washington with me and prepared for a long stay. Lamon then accompanied him as he traveled from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. in February 1861. This trip would prove to be eventful. Uh, he became the bodyguard for Lincoln. Lincoln also appointed him U.S. Marshal of the District of Columbia. Now, he gets into hot water with one of the two books that he uh, wrote, uh, this one that we're dealing with, uh, The Life of Abraham Lincoln from His Birth to His Inauguration as President, uh, was believed to be heavily ghostwritten by Chauncey Black, the son of a former Attorney General of the United States, Jeremiah Black. Uh, and as I said, it was not uh, a very flattering uh, biography, if you will. Um, 
And so the basis of the book was the papers of William Herndon, Herndon which Lamon pr uh, purchased for either two or four thousand dollars. Shortly after his death, Lamon's daughter collected and edited many of the unpublished writings about Lincoln into a biography of the president, Recollections of Abraham Lincoln. That was the second book. But this one got a lot of people upset because, uh, from this quote, in fact, and then we'll go into the, uh, into the book itself, M Mr. Lincoln was never a member of any church, nor did he believe in the divinity of Christ or the inspiration of the scriptures in the sense understood by evangelical Christians. Now, of course, this is going to raise all kinds of hackles, but unfortunately, that's probably the truth. All right, this is from uh, the life of Abraham Lincoln. This is Lamon's words <clears throat> uh, in describing Lincoln and his spirituality. The community in which uh, he lived was preeminently a community of free thinkers in matters of religion. And it was then no secret, nor has it been a secret since, that Mr. Lincoln agreed with the majority of associates in denying to the Bible the authority of divine revelation. It was his honest belief, a belief which uh, it was no reproach to hold at New Salem in 1834, and one which he never thought of concealing. He was a fierce zealot and gl gl uh, gloried proudly in his title of fanatic, for it was his conviction that fanatics were at all times the salt of the earth with power to save it from the blight that follows the wickedness of men. He believed in a God, but it was the God of nature, the God of Socrates and Plato, as well as the God of Jacob. He believed in a Bible, but it was the open scroll of the universe and in a religious clear and well-defined, but it was a religion that scorned what he deemed the narrow slavery of verbal inspiration. Hot-blooded, impulsive, brave morally and physically, careless of consequences when moved by a sense of individual duty, he was the very man to receive into his inmost heart the precepts of Mr. Seward's higher law. If he had pledged faith to slavery, no peril of life or body could have induced him to violate it. But he held himself no party to the compromises of the Constitution, hmm, uh, nor to any law which recognized the justice of human bondage. And he was therefore free to act as his God and nature prompted. An analysis of Mr. Lincoln's character would be defective um, that did not include his religious opinions. On such matters, he thought deeply, and his opinions were positive. But perhaps no phase of his character has been more persistently misrepresented and variously misunderstood than this of his religious beliefs. Not that the conclusive testimony of many of his intimate associates relative to his frequent expressions on sub subjects has ever been wanting, but his great prominence in the world's history and his identification with some of the great questions of our time, which, by their moral import, were held to be eminently religious in their character, have led many good people to trace in his motives and actions similar convictions to those held by themselves. His extremely general expressions of religious faith, called forth by the grave exigencies of his public life, or indulged in on occasions of private condolence, have too often been distorted out of relation to their real significance or meaning to suit the opinions or tickle the fancies of individuals or parties. Mr. Lincoln was never a member of any church, nor did he believe in the divinity of Christ or the inspiration of the scriptures in the sense understood by evangelical Christians. His theological opinions were substantially those expounded by Theodore Parker, overwhelmingly te uh, testimony out of many mouths and none stronger than that of his own, place these facts beyond controversy. It was not until after Mr. Lincoln's death that his alleged orthodoxy became the principal topic of his eulogists. But since then, the effort on the part of some political writers and speakers to impress the public mind erroneously seems to have been general and systematic. It is important that the question should finally be determined, and in order to do so, the names of some of his nearest friends are given below, followed by clear and decisive statements for which they are separately responsible. Some of them are gentlemen of distinction, and all of them men of high character who enjoyed the best opportunities to form correct opinions. And this one is from a James H. Matheny in a letter to uh, William Herndon. I knew Mr. Lincoln as early as 1834 to 1837. No, he was an infidel. He and W.D. Herndon um, used to talk infidelity in the clerk's office uh, in the city about the years uh, 1840. Lincoln attacked the Bible and the New Testament on two grounds. 
First, from the inherent or apparent contradiction under its lids. Second, from the grounds of reason. Sometimes you ridicule the Bible and New Testament. Sometimes seem to scoff it, though I shall not use that word in its full and literal sense. I never heard that Lincoln changed his views, uh, though his personal and political friend from 1831 to 1860. Sometimes Lincoln bordered on atheism. He went far that way and often shocked me. I was then a young man and believed what my good mother told me. Stewart and Lincoln's office was in what was called Hoffman's Row. We'll hear from Stewart in a second. Uh, it was on North Fifth Street near the public square. It was in the same building as the clerk's office and on the same floor. Lincoln would come into the clerk's office where I and some young men, Evan Butler, Newton Francis, and others, were writing or staying uh, and would bring the Bible with him, would read a chapter and argue against it. Lincoln then had a smattering of geology, if I recollect it. Lincoln often, if not wholly, was an atheist, at least bordered on it. Lincoln was enthusiastic in his infidelity, meaning an infidel against God. As he grew older, he grew more discreet, didn't talk much before strangers about his religion, but to friends, close, and bosom ones, he was always open and avowed, fair and honest, but to strangers, he held them off from policy. From what I know of Mr. Lincoln and his views of Christianity, and from what I know as honest and well-founded rumor, from what I have heard his best friends say and regret for years, from what he never denied when accused, and from what Lincoln has hinted and intimated to say no more, he did write a little book on infidelity at or near New Salem in Menard County about the year 1834 or 1835. I have stated these things to you often. Judge Logan, John T. Stewart, yourself, know what I know, and some of you more. All right, this is from uh, the Honorable John T. Stewart. I knew Mr. Lincoln when he first came here and for years afterwards. He was an avowed and open infidel, sometimes bordered on atheism. I have often uh, heard Lincoln and one W.D. Herndon, who was a free thinker, talk over this subject. Lincoln went further against Christian beliefs and doctrines and principles than any man I ever heard. He shocked me. I don't remember the exact line of his argument. Suppose it was against the inherent defects, so-called, of the Bible, and on grounds of reason. Lincoln always denied that Jesus was the Christ of God, denied that Jesus was the Son of God, as understood and maintained by the Christian Church. The Reverend Dr. Smith, who wrote a letter and tried to convert Lincoln from infidelity as late as 1858 and couldn't do it. All right, uh, from the Honorable David Davis. I do not know anything about Lincoln's religion and do not think anybody knew. The idea that Lincoln talked to a stranger about his religion or religious views or made such speeches, remarks, etc. about it or as published, uh, about it as are published, is to me absurd. I know the man so well. He was the most reticent, secretive man I ever saw or expect to see. He had no faith uh, in the Christian sense of the term, had faith in laws, principles, causes, and effects philosophically. You, Heron, didn't know more about his religion than any man. You ought to know it, of course. Another brief statement from a William H. Hanna Esquire, a lawyer. Since 1856, Mr. Lincoln told me that he was a kind of immortalist, that he never uh, could bring himself to believe in eternal punishment, that man lived but a little while here, and that if eternal punishment were man's doom, he should spend that little life in vigilant and ceaseless preparation by never-ending prayer. From a Dr. C.H. Ray, I do not know how can I aid you. Tom Herndon knew Mr. Lincoln far better than I did, though I knew him well, and you have served up his leading characteristics in a way that I should despair of doing. If I should try, uh, I have only one thing to ask, that you do not give Calvinist, Calvinistic theology a chance to claim him as one of its saints and martyrs. He went to the old school church, but in spite of that outward ascent to the horrible dogmas of the sect, I have reason uh, from himself to know that his uh, uh, vital purity if that means belief in the impossible, was that of a negative sort. And uh, we'll let it go with that. I mean, we can go on and on about this, but I think the point's clear. And one of the things that our, the propaganda does in the United States is make everybody a Christian. There's a lot of people who don't care for Christianity, you know, whether they call themselves atheists or agnostics, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that it, making Lincoln such a great Christian and making Washington such a great Christian really worked with the Christian nation at, at whatever times. I mean, certainly it spilled over even into my education uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. 
But this is also to make these characters almost deific, and therefore, in a sense, incapable of making, um, shall we say, errors, or to make, what would you want to call it, a genocide of any kind of people. I mean, how in the world do Christians, and I've said this a million times, how do you overlook a, a, a Christian nation genociding the native peoples? Beginning somewhat, I mean, you could say it started in, in the late 18th century uh, and then continued through almost to the, uh, the 20th. When you think about the last uh, scuffles there were between uh, the Native Americans and uh, uh, military force uh, around 1890s. So this is why we're stuck with Lincoln as a Christian. And uh, it's truthfully, it's propaganda, but I mean, who cares? Who cares if your pre president's a Christian or not? Because, you, you know, you're not going to do Christian things. It's impossible to. I remember when Carter ran, everybody thought he was a Christian. Well, he, he talked the talk, but he didn't necessarily walk the walk. And I will say to you that anybody who's a president in no way, shape, or form can be sold out uh, to uh, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Impossible. And this is a case in point. Now, there's other things that go on, and we'll get to them in time. But there's this one thing I find is really pointed, and it's this vindictiveness that certain parties have toward Lincoln this very day. Now, the LaRussians love Lincoln, and they put him up there with this, what is this, this triad with um, Lincoln, FDR, and John Quincy Adams. Huh? But that's baloney, too. However, you get um, the Lou Rockwell site is extremely pitched against Lincoln, and one of their major contributors uh, and uh, detractors from Lincoln is uh, Tom DiLorenzo, who uh, teaches at, this will come as a real big surprise, Loyola of Baltimore. I mean, they've got Lincoln. I mean, they, they just kicked the stuffings out of Lincoln. It's been going on now for decades. And it's like, what's the point? They're trying to, I, I would assume, uh, do something to negate this, again, the deific sense uh, of Lincoln, where you, you can see them. I mean, think about when you were going to grammar school, and there was Washington's picture off to the left, and, and of course it was the month of February, and then it was Lincoln's picture off to the right, and you know, Battle Hymn of Republic, his son in churches for some strange reason, and that's affixed to Lincoln as well. Uh, you know, it, here's the old story. You know, if you want somebody to get you through bad times, you find the baddest guy you can to get you through it. Doesn't matter what he is. You know, it's like it's like it's like in sports. If you want to win, you get the best coach there is. Doesn't matter if he's an absolute maniac or madman or whatever. I mean, if that's the person that's going to get you the title, get get him. Let's go. I don't care what he is. Just be effective. Be successful. Now, the other thing is this. I don't hold Lincoln in either one of those camps. What I do know is, of course, he instigated the Civil War. He was, that's, he was told to do that. That's what he was supposed to do, and that's what he did with Fort Sumter. No two ways about it. And I'm not saying this guy was um, you know, such, such a great man, per se. I mean, he had a lot of forces pulling on him, and it, and it did cost him his life. What I would say is this, and I think that's a lot like Kennedy as well. They knew what the job was when they took it on. They knew what was going to happen. He'd already seen two attempts on Buchanan's life. Lincoln did. Uh, and one was at Buchanan's inauguration party. Oh, a little rat poison got into the water? Did it? Come on. I mean, Buchanan was going to resist certain forces, and as a result, they were going to kill him. But it didn't work out. But he understood what the program was, and... Um, he managed to get through the four years, and then Lincoln took over, and Lincoln knew what was going on. And we'll talk later on about uh, some people who have the viewpoint, and I think it's accurate, that you can start with assassinations. I mean, Jackson was attempted, and it failed. I don't believe that stuff about Washington, how a guy shot him point blank, and it just, I don't know, with the bullet vaporized. Give me a break. See, that's that old, you know, the God thing, you know. Um, Washington is God, apotheosis. Anyway, uh, so Lincoln already had an idea that if you go stray of the plan, you might wind up dead. Saw that with Harrison. Oh, it was a cold. No, it wasn't. He was poisoned. Um, 
and then with Buchanan. And you can read about that in newspapers if you go back to right around that time. So, I mean, it didn't get into history books, but it certainly did happen. It's a matter of the public record. So Lincoln knew going in that he had to be a Turk, if you know what I'm saying. He had a job to do, and he did it. But I do also believe that at some point in his presidency, and I would assume that the pivotal year of 1863, um, I think he, shall we say, lost his stomach for it and just wanted to get this thing over with. Ironically, to expedite the war, he had to accelerate the carnage and brutality. But it did bring the war to a rapid end, which is what many people did not want, including those in this party who were making money on this deal and others who wanted to see the Confederacy just absolutely beat into red snot because they were um, abolitionists and the South had it coming. And a lot of people feel that the South was, would stick its aristocracy in the face of the North. So there, it was certainly ranked sectionalism going on there, and I believe there was also some um, religious partisanism that was going on. So uh, the way that Lincoln came out of all this prior to his death was responsible for his death, and I do believe he finally said, I can't do this anymore, and for that I can at least respect that. I think Kennedy the same thing, I can't do this anymore. Well, sorry, you know, guess what? Pop goes the presidents. All right, this has been what we call Act Two of a mystery history theater. And this has been the series, Who Ordered the Hit on Abe? <laughs>